staff room. Hello and welcome to The Staff Room, the monthly podcast brought to you by the Institute for Education at Bath Spa University. I'm Professor Kate Reynolds, Dean of Bath Spa Institute for Education. This episode we're talking about assessment for learning, summative versus formative assessment, how it benefits students, why resources, collaboration and support are important for teachers and the practicalities of implementing new assessment strategies in schools. I'm Benton Brown, Head of Initial Teacher Education for Secondary. I'll give you a brief overview of assessment for learning, a little bit about how we use it in in teacher training, but also sort of how beneficial to students and pupils in classrooms. I mean, the idea of assessments obviously is sort of central to teachers' um, practice, but I think there's ideas around assessments being sort of a negative thing and and a lot of focus on exams and teaching to the test and things like that. And when we think of assessment, we probably think of it in terms of assessment of learning, which is looking backwards at what students have learned and using exams to say, do do students know this or do students not know, you know, pieces of information. The idea around that is that it's a summative assessment. It's an assessment to see what a student has learned in the past and looking backwards. The idea around assessment for learning is more around uh, formative assessments, which are uh, assessments during the learning process, as opposed to an assessment that looks back at what students have learned, maybe a short snapshot in time to see during the learning process where a student is, where a student needs to go, Um, what adjustments need to be made for the student to get to that sort of learning outcome that the teacher has intended on them getting to and that the student in the end wants to get to. And so assessment for learning is that assessment sort of during the learning process that allows a teacher and also a student to adjust their practice and their learning in the midst of the learning as opposed to at the end of the learning. But it's more than just sort of ongoing assessments. It is a process and it's something that we try to teach in all of our teacher training here at BASPA is that teachers make this really an environment in their classroom where there is questioning going on during the learning process so that the teachers actually questioning students throughout the process to see where students are, but also that they're giving feedback throughout. So as we're working towards these learning goals that are set by both the teacher and the student, we can question, we can do different tasks and different strategies to test and see where students are so that students can adjust their own learning, but also so that teachers can adjust their practice to the learning that's taking place or not taking place. One aspect of assessment for learning is peer feedback, that it's not always just the teacher telling students, yes, you know, you, you're you right, you're wrong, you've learned this, or, or marking, if you will, but students able to sort of learn from each other um, and assess each other. Um, part of that is creating an environment in the classroom where it's not about ranking, it's not about who's top of the class, who's bottom of the class. It's about getting to that end point, getting to that learning outcome that you want to, and so it becomes more collaborative. And so peer assessment is part of that. But the idea is that by, in the end, students are able to self-assess and assessment for learning is supposed to support the learning process um, and not just be an assessment at the end that tells you whether or not you've learned but that students throughout that process can check for their own understanding and find out whether or not they've actually learned what what they've intended to as they're learning so that they can adjust it's really i think it's a lot about knowing where students are 
both for teachers to know where students are, but also for students themselves to know where they're at in the learning process. And so I think that's really what assessment for learning is all about. It can be used in, in a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different strategies. A lot of the ones that, that I've brought with me sort of from the states are from Teach Like a Champion, which is a lot about just short strategies that can be used in the classroom to assess for learning throughout the lesson as opposed to looking at it sort of on the back end. Um, and so obviously it's something that's important in the teacher training process, but also from the student perspective, it's something that's important because students need to know where they're at. Students need to know whether they need to adjust what they're doing throughout the learning process so that they can reach the goal that they want to achieve. And if students don't know that they're struggling or don't know that they're achieving, it's difficult for students to really get to where they want to go if they don't know where they're at. Assessment for learning allows us to and allows students to know where they're at at any given point in time during that learning process so that they can achieve those learning goals. The idea is that you can instill this into students. For instance, in a secondary school, it's not just about your subject or your class, but it's something that you instill in students that they seek that information about where they're at in the process of, of achieving those goals. And that, that from a primary age, um, students that when assessment for learning is taking place in a classroom, students become involved in their own learning. It's not just a teacher standing up at the front of the class and teaching students and the expectation that students learn. It's students taking an active role in their own process, which then I think helps when they become more independent in secondary schools. Because then, as they grow in their independence uh, in a secondary school, they get a bit more independent than they probably were in a primary school. But yet, that self-assessment is still there. And it grows even more, I think, throughout secondary school and then into higher education, where there's a lot of independence and there's an expectation that you're doing this to a certain extent yourself. And while we know that good you know, higher education lecturers, professors, and things like that are still using some of these assessment for learning strategies, a lot of that is now put on the, on the student to be able to sort of self-assess. And so I think it's helpful that this process goes all the way through primary into secondary, and then once they get to that sort of independence in, in higher education and beyond in life, that they're able to use the same strategies that they used in school in the real world. Hi, my name is Sarah Earle and I am the project lead for the Teacher Assessment in Primary Science project, the TAPS project. It's funded by the Primary Science Teaching Trust and it's based at Bathspar University since 2013 and it's ongoing. TAPS works with teachers, it's a real collaborative project. Um, we aim to work with um, project schools to develop support for teacher assessment in primary science but also beyond. So it's trying to support teachers with their assessment processes so that they're more valid and reliable and manageable and so that they'll have a positive impact on pupil learning. So the aim is to try and get the assessments to be more valid because they want to look at all elements of the subject, um, to be more reliable so that the teachers can have a clear idea of what a good one looks like and discuss the criteria, developing that, that shared understanding and also to try and find manageable ways of building up assessment processes within the schools. So we do that by looking at real examples, which is why we work with project schools across the UK, to try and find actual examples of what that looks like in practice. And all those examples um, go onto the Primary Science Teaching Trust website 
building up the focused assessment database so that teachers can download and have a look at pupil outcomes or different ways of doing this. But all of this is to try and get a positive impact on pupil outcomes. And, and that's where this ties in with assessment for learning, really, because when we started the project in 2013, it was the time when statutory assessment in England was changing completely, levels were going, and there was a big pushback against statutory measures trying to skew the curriculum so that there was only a focus on summative assessment. So for us, that meant pushing back with trying to get more of a focus on formative assessment, assessment for learning that would make a difference in the classroom. And so we've ended up building up a model of assessment for learning as the, the core base of the TAPS pyramid model. And it means it starts with active pupils in the classroom, so self-assessment, peer assessment, time to reflect, trying for them to consider their next steps. And that feeds into teachers being responsive. So responsive teachers eliciting pupil ideas, using these ideas for planning so that they're starting where the children are, clear objectives, the principles of assessment for learning and formative assessment across any context or subject, and making it responsive so that the teachers are adapting within the lessons. And so all of that's encapsulated in the TAPS pyramid model, and the aim is that you look at the examples that are on there. So you click on um, self-assessment box or whatever um, and see examples from across England and Wales currently, and we're working with Northern Ireland and Scotland. The aim is to try and collect lots and lots of different examples. What does it look like to do assessment for learning in the classroom? We're working with secondary schools as well to see, well, what does that look like for transition? What does that look like in key stage three? A nice example um, to make put this into a bit of context is one of my favourite ones is where you click on the um, TAPS pyramid pupil layer box for peer assessment and it takes you to an example on um, from a year five lesson on space. And what was really good about this lesson was that there was a really clear objective that the children were learning about the Earth's orbit around the sun. And they were doing it in a practical way with pee balls and modelling the Earth's orbit around the sun. But because they discussed what a good explanation would look like, then the teacher and the pupils were all clear about what would it look like for this to be a good explanation, a good modelling of this orbiting, and using the word orbit and keeping the sun still, that kind of thing. They agreed that beforehand, and then they had to go. But the really good assessment of learning bit is then they paused and watched each other and gave advice, and it was the pupils giving advice to each other about how to improve. And because they did that in the middle of the lesson, they then improved their explanations in the next bit. So they did it again, but made sure that they kept the sun still and things. And that made it manageable. And so that's the kind of thing we're looking to try and find examples of and see that that can support other people in different contexts. So with assessment for learning and formative assessment, you're always asking, how will this help the pupils to learn? Um, what is it that I'm doing here that will help the pupils? And the focus is on the learning. It's not on whether you're using particular strategies, because in lots of the literature it talks about how assessment for learning strategies have been sort of prioritised but, but not really taken to heart. So you feel like you're doing assessment for learning because you're doing thumbs up and all that kind of stuff, but actually are you doing assessment for learning? Is there a focus on the learning? Is there an impact on the pupil learning and that's the key that's what you're after is trying to work out how is it i can tweak this lesson tweak the feedback use that information from the children and then adapt the next learning experiences so that the learning is supported and they can move on 
my name's Isabel Hopwood-Stevens. I'm an associate lecturer at Slasbar in primary science on the PGC course and also education studies. And I'm also in my third year of studying a PhD into the tax pyramid. For people who haven't seen the tax pyramid before, what you kind of need to bear in mind is that it's, it's like an A4-sized diagrammatic representation of what you do to generate formative assessment data, so assessment for learning strategies, and that's kind of along the bottom. It's a kind of pyramid shape, that's why it's called the tax pyramid. And then there's a kind of middle, uh, middle layers, if you like, which is what you do with that data and how you compare that data between you um, with your teachers, and then how you feed that data up to make summative judgments that can be used for reporting. And that can be reporting internally within the school. It can be reporting between colleagues about how people, you know, children are doing in year groups. And it can be used for external reporting to parents and to local authorities. So having something like that available, I found in terms of benefits from the research I've done. So I've done an online survey of over 100 respondents, which is mostly science subject leads, but also class teachers and some school leaders. And I've also just done two case studies where I've gone and looked at schools in a lot of detail about how they're using it. And what I've found is that the benefits are different based on the job role of the person you're talking to. So if you're a class teacher, what tends to be the response is that the TAPS pyramid is really useful for me because I can check in on what formative assessment strategies I'm using. I can improve my repertoire, I can build on what I'm already doing. I can be more confident that I'm using them correctly, I'm using them accurately, and I'm using ones that are particularly effective for the teaching of this subject. If you talk to the science subject leads especially the ones that I've spoken to in detail during the case studies. They found the TAPS pyramid really useful as well, but the benefits with them were more for being able to evaluate the existing level of assessment literacy amongst their colleagues when it came to using formative assessment strategies in the teaching of primary science, and then what happened next with that data. So quite often the data was already being generated by teachers who are competently practising formative assessment but then what happened to it? It stayed in the teacher's head or it just evaporated at the end of the lesson. Where did it go next? Where was it stored? How was it managed? How was it, how was it recycled towards a summative judgment, if you like? So for them, it was a very useful tool for kind of being able to evaluate across the board where everybody was and then devise useful interventions and often quite tailor-made interventions for the different teachers based on where their ability levels were, what their assessment literacy was like. And it was also useful for them to be able to kind of sell the vision to their colleagues and to the senior leadership team because again because it's a visual representation it's quite easy for people to kind of look at and kind of get a general picture of what was supposed to be happening with it this idea of data flowing up through a school but when you spoke to head teachers or sort of senior leadership figures for them the TAPS pyramid the key benefit was that it exemplified this idea of you know the collection of formative assessment data and its use towards summative judgment because there's a lot of talk about it and we all know it's something that we should all be doing in schools especially since the abolition of levelling a couple of years ago. And so now everyone's in this post-levels kind of assessment landscape. But, but how confident can you really be that what your school is doing and how your school is collecting data and evaluating children's progress, how, without this central guidance, how confident can you be that you're doing it effectively, competently, and so on? So both the head teachers I spoke to both expressed a sort of relief in some ways that they had, look, here's this picture and we look at this and it shows us, you know. And so for them, it was this visual representation of where the data can come from, how it can be generated, how it moves up through the school, how it can be used. I think based on the roles and responsibilities of the person you're talking to and what, what their most pressing concern is, you know, if you're reporting your school's performance to the local authority or if you're just trying to teach rocks and soils effectively, you know, you sort of interpret it 
a little bit differently and you pull different benefits from it. What issues have you found teachers and subject leaders can come up against implementing something like TAPS in their schools? And what are the characteristics of teachers and schools where it's worked really well? This was interesting because, because I've got two sets of data here that are useful. I've got an online survey and then I've got these two very detailed case studies where I went into schools. And these were schools where it was working. You know, we, I didn't try and pick schools where it wasn't working because I couldn't find anyone. You know, no one came forward and said, it hasn't worked in my school, do you want to talk to me? You know, it's, it's not the way it goes. So, so in terms of the issues, more of those came out through the online survey. And this isn't going to surprise anybody who works in teaching or, or has worked in schools. Time was the first major sort of reason that was given and that wasn't a reason that I gave on the responses to the survey if people wanted to say lack of time they had to click the box that said other and then type it into the box because everyone knows no one has enough time in schools that was a factor in I think more than 40 percent when they were asked have you been able to implement this at a school level so not just using it as an individual but you know using it throughout the school over 40 percent of the people we said no said and it's because of time a lack of time the second factor was probably a sort of lack of understanding amongst the senior leadership team. So the senior leadership team, so by that I mean the head teachers, deputy heads, you know, phase leaders if you're a big school, wouldn't support it. They couldn't see the benefits, basically. They couldn't see the need for using it or trying to enact some or all of it with the teachers and how they were assessing progress in science. And then another reason that was sort of sat underneath that one was that and most of the respondents, by the way, to the survey were science subject leads. So it was these people saying, well, I couldn't use it at a whole school level because my colleagues didn't see the point. So again, so it's not, you know, it can just be the people at the top saying, no, we don't have time for this or no, we can't see the point of this. But it can also be, you know, for teachers, it can be their peers who don't fully understand the benefits of formative assessment or don't fully understand the mechanisms of assessment for learning because there is a weakness in initial teacher training. And then when you kind of go out into your school to go and work, you are somewhat at the mercy of what further training and professional development you get. And so I think, you know, there is a variable level of understanding among, you know, between schools and even within schools for the the benefits of formative assessment, how you use it, how it enriches teaching, how it improves assessment and evaluation of progress. Without sort of going back to each of those survey respondents and saying, when you said this, what exactly did you mean? Which unfortunately is impossible. I can't kind of clarify that any further, but it's interesting that those were the main reasons that were given. And I think that in turn, especially the idea of the senior leadership team not supporting it or colleagues not really seeing the point of doing something with the the TAPS pyramid and not really being interested in it, I think that speaks to a wider issue, really, which again has been coming out in my research, which is the responsibility, if you like, that the person who brings any new, new idea into a school, such as the TAPS pyramid, the responsibility that they have to not only just be bringing the idea into the school, but to actually be able to articulate its value and describe its benefit. Because if they can't do that, if they can't kind of persuade those around them that this is something that's actually worth investing in, it's not really going to happen. And there's some really interesting research that I've been looking at and applying to what I was doing in terms of sort of organisational learning and so on. And it's this idea of kind of knowledge boundaries, you know, between between sort of people on different sides. So if the science subject lead brings the TAPS pyramid in and the knowledge boundary is what's called a pragmatic one because basically what you're looking at is really quite complicated and it requires 
you know, it requires everybody to kind of start thinking afresh about what they're doing and how they're doing it. And it also requires people to stop doing things the way they're doing them now and to change them. It's knowledge and practice that's at risk because it's kind of going to be overwritten by new ideas. And you really, you need those other people to really understand or feel that they understand the benefits and the advantages of making that big investment. And so that requires a lot of skill. The researcher who I've been looking at is called Robert Carlyle, and he has a paper from 2004 where he's talking about boundaries and processes. And he explains that as what's called a transformational process. You know, things must change, you know, for the knowledge to be passed on. I, I wonder if, and this is speculation, but I wonder if in those schools where the tax pyramid couldn't really get off the ground, it was because there was a big gulf between the knowledge that was contained in the tax pyramid and the understanding of the people within the school. And maybe that person who was bringing that new knowledge in, maybe they were unable to articulate it you know, sufficiently clearly or persuasively so that people could see the benefit. It's definitely important to have support and guidance, and especially when you're looking at something like the TAPS pyramid. It's described as having a fundamentally open character. It's open to interpretation. There's lots of different ways you can use it, and we've already seen that in terms of the way that people with different job roles respond to it differently and interpret it slightly differently. It's quite complex. It requires engagement with it too, and we already know that teachers learn best from each other. They learn best with each other. They learn through sort of social learning processes where they're able to discuss their practice and compare notes and see how someone else is doing it and reflect upon it and so on and so on. So none of that's a surprise. But what surprised me a little bit about what came out again in the second and third stages of my research was I was thinking that because they learn like this, what they're going to need in these schools is a kind of very structured staff meeting, like regular staff meetings to sit down and discuss what they're doing and something a little bit like a PLC, a professional learning community. And while I did find that find out that was quite important, I found out that what was far more significant in my data when I analysed it was actually the workplace characteristics. So it was whether somebody was working in a school that could be described as an expansive workplace, so the Hawkinson and Hawkinson research, whether it was expansive or restrictive. And it was more significant in my data, in terms of the link to whole school use of the tax pyramid, that the respondent worked in an expansive workplace than it was that they worked somewhere where they had these very structured meetings about it. That makes you think as well, it's not just, while the meetings are important and while the training is important, it's not just there that a teacher learns. They also learn through their interactions with their peers, through those kind of ad hoc sort of or spontaneous conversations you have where you're checking details with a colleague. And so, again, in the case studies, what's come out there what I was trying to find out was the significance of those, all the different types of communication that take place between teachers when they're trying to learn. So the formal contacts they have, like staff meetings, and the informal contacts they have, like corridor chats, staff room chats, you know, kind of buttonholing each other about something they don't understand. Um, and they value them all equally. And it turns out, again, that, you know, this, this kind of being able to have that kind of informal contact and being able to approach each other like that is very important to teachers who are learning because it sort of it reassures them and makes them feel like they're part of a wider community it makes them feel that they're part of a team effort so the workplace characteristics how they feel about how they can work where they work are very important to them not just the kind of the opportunities the formal opportunities they get to learn thank you to benton brown sarah earl and isabel hopwood stevens to see more on the TAPS Pyramid and resources, Sarah's Twitter account and Isabel's research, links are included in the episode notes. If you've enjoyed this or any of our previous episodes, 
please subscribe to The Staff Room via iTunes or SoundCloud and follow us on Twitter at BathSpar underscore IFE. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at ife at bathspa.ac.uk. See you next time. The Staff Room is brought to you by the Institute for Education at Bath Spa University. It is presented by Dr. Kate Reynolds. We know a lot about education at the IFE. We've been educating students, teachers, and other education professionals since the 1940s. As educationalists, we work in the classroom and other settings across the world, providing the highest quality teaching and research with over 600 partners, including schools, colleges, early year settings, and anywhere where learning takes place. Over 600 undergraduates study with us each year alongside over 500 student teachers and an increasing number of post-grad students, all committed to building created, connected education communities focused on bringing theory and research to quality education practice. For more info, visit www.bathspa.ac.uk forward slash schools forward slash education or catch us on Twitter at bathspa underscore IFE. And remember, be creative, educate.